All right. Good morning again, everyone. Junior Church this morning. All right. Well, yesterday we had a really neat privilege to take some of the young people from one of the Sunday school classes to the Bible Museum in D.C. And uh, boy, that was just really exciting. How many of you all have been to that? Jim, Marilyn, Neil, okay, and those just of a couple of us, yes. Sophia's been there now. Um, I just want to encourage you, yes, and Scholar's been there. Uh, we really should get another group going up there because it was very simple. We just caught the metro uh, in the Vienna stop, rode it right into the literally the block where the museum is, walked in, walked out when we were done, came right back home. It was just that simple. The hardest part was holding on to the outsides of the, the metro rail and because it was, well, okay. You're not awake at all, are you? Thank you, Roylene, that you're awake. It's okay. You can be awake now. No, but it really was a blessing, and they have spared no expense putting that together. Uh, I was just really, really amazed at uh, how God has done so much to preserve his word for us. Over the centuries, it's just a beautiful, beautiful thing as they found the artifacts and were imitating some of the artifacts that have been found that are in the other museums around the world of the ancient writings of the scriptures, and it was just really, really fascinating. Now, uh, each person had a little bit of a different like in different areas, but that's what museums are all about. So I really want to encourage you, if you've never been, either just go or let's talk about going again. And uh, they have the means to, if you can't walk, they have wheelchairs, they've just got it all set up. To, to be able to see this, and it's just really, really a neat thing. So uh, give me your input on that if you would like to do that at some point. You know, one of the things that we talk about a lot in our culture today is just how it's harder to get people more and more excited about the things of God. Uh, and churches are doing a lot of different things to make people excited and enthusiastic. Unfortunately, what happens a lot of times is, is if it's emotion-driven, there's not a lot of spiritual health that comes from that necessarily. Now, my goal for us has always been to be as spiritually healthy as we possibly can be because when we're spiritually healthy, then we will be emotionally healthy, right? It doesn't mean we're going to be physically healthy all the time, but we will be emotionally healthy if we're spiritually healthy. It doesn't mean it works the other way around. So there are many, many people that are driven so much by their emotions, but their emotions are just kind of a wreck just all over the place. Our goal, beloved, is to always be doctrinally sound, doctrinally theologically clear, because even though those are big buzzwords in the Bible world, it's critical for us to know what God has really said so that we can be everything he wants us to be. Now, having said that, I can't think of anything more exciting than some of the things that the Lord has done written down in his word and some of the things that the museum tried to put together just for our visual effect yesterday. But now today we come up with the baptism of Jesus. This is our part two because we have some thoughts that we want to finish this morning in Matthew's chapter, Matthew chapter 3. But what, what could there be more exciting than to see the Son of God being baptized? And as we're going to read here in just a minute, the Spirit of God descending upon him. I'd like to see some church pull that off. Okay. But the Lord himself, beloved, has given to us his very presence indwelt by his power and his spirit to save us and rescue us. And so we're going to finish some of these thoughts today. I do want to catch us up since we missed last week on the subject. And so we'll go backwards just a little bit and spend some time there. So let's stand and read chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. And uh, the subject or the topic for today will be the last two verses, verses 16 and 17. 
So we're told by Matthew, Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him saying, I have need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he permitted him. Now picking up in verse 16, After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Praise the Lord. You may be seated. All right, well, let's go to the Lord in prayer as we uh, begin our thoughts here for today. Father, we thank you uh, for the time that we have together. And uh, it's our prayer that as we just settle ourselves to hear your word, uh, that we really would do just that. I appreciate it so much, Brother Danny's prayer just a moment ago, or that we would just uh, push away the things of this life for a few moments and that we would hear from you, that our hearts would hunger for you and desire to, to know you and to hear from you today. So I pray that you'd use my voice and my mind to speak your thoughts and truth from your word, or that the people would hear today what you would have us all to hear. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's go backwards, as I said. You remember last time now, as we just read, John was baptizing in the Jordan, a very important event that was occurring in that time, preaching a very simple message. It was very clear. It was repent the kingdom of God is here. That's what the message was, and we talked a lot about that. Now, you also remember that we talked about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders who were coming to check John out, trying to figure out who he was. It's true, they probably understood that he was a great prophet and wanted to know what he was doing and so how they could become a part of all that was happening there. But John turns it around on them and says, I know why you're here. Who warned you, though? Your hearts are wrong. Who was it that told you about the coming end? And John's point was transformation begins in the heart. And that's where we've spent the last couple messages. But I don't want to go past that too fast, beloved. This is what I was talking about a moment ago, is that if we're just emotionally charged people and we're just looking for the next greatest thing and the next self-help thing and whatever somebody can do or what even God can do for me, we're missing the point because God wants to affect our hearts. And when our hearts are changed, all these other things begin to go away. And we find ourselves very settled. And so John's point was, you've got to change in the heart. You can't just change intellectually. You've got to change in the heart. That's where transformation begins. The heart is the place where God does his work. And then he said to us, you remember, that from that then fruit will be produced. Things will come from that. Namely, things like a genuine love for God. Now, people can talk about having a love for God, but if it's not a genuine heart love for the Lord, then there's a problem. I don't think I have to explain that very far. You know when you truly love somebody, right? You, love, you know when you don't love somebody. You know what genuine love is. So it's not hard to describe. It's that kind of thing. When a person genuinely loves, they know it. It's deep within their soul. We also saw that there's a true humility and a a devotion to the glory of God. That's what we are here for. We're really not here to just get something for our pockets to make it through the next week so we can get here next Sunday and hopefully everything's okay. I mean, that's a part of life, certainly, but our real purpose is to glorify God. We've got to get that in our heads. We've got to write that down in the stone of our hearts so that we're 
understanding that this life is not about us. It's about His glory. And when we're dedicated to His glory, we understand that our heart is displaying this sacrificial love for Him. Okay? Now, John would not listen to their excuses when he said in chapter 3, verse 9, Do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these very stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. In other words, don't you think for a second that you can ride the coattails of somebody else? Don't just think that because you were raised in a Christian home, if we wanted to apply this to us, It's because you had Christian parents, you have a Christian brother or sister, and they're serving in some ministry across the world, and you were brought up in that same environment, or you know somebody who's a Christian, or whatever, you've been to church all your life, and on and on and on it goes. Don't think that that's going to be your ticket into heaven. That's not it. And these spiritual leaders were riding the coattails of who they thought they were, and that's wrong. And again, the true church is made up of people not who, who not only see their sin but acknowledge it before the Lord in repentance and want to live broken before Him. You know, the early uh, Puritans really understood this really, really well. They were people who understood that their, their depths of depravity. Uh, they didn't let it keep them from living life. I mean, these were the people who sailed across the ocean to be here in this new land. I, for one, would not want to get on a little wooden ship and ride across the ocean for months and potentially lose my life if it weren't for God moving in my heart and to have a a heart that was uh, full of humility. These were people who had that truth understood. But people who are true church people, I'm talking about the true church, are people who live their lives for God deep from within their hearts. He is the priority, not again from the intellect or anything else that they do. What matters is, what John is saying is, it has your heart changed. And you can tell when your heart has changed, not only by the love factor itself, but you long to be with Jesus. I mean, that's a really good tell. You know, I remember some years ago in my life, before I was truly born again, understanding that God was important and he was necessary in life and had a great sensitivity to him. I'm just being honest with you. This is my testimony. But it wasn't until God really affected my heart that I understood that there was something wrong. I can remember many days going, oh, I don't feel like going to church. Well, some days we don't feel like going to church. There's some days we wake up on Sunday mornings, we're like, oh, pastor made the prayer time 841. Why has he got to make it 841? Why can't it be later than that? Why did you change the Sunday school hour? You know, couldn't it be later than that? I mean, we feel all of these things, right? And some days we just don't want to be a part of what God is doing. That's the flesh in us. But it doesn't last long when a person is truly born again. Because they know that Jesus is worth it, right? I mean, Jesus is worth it. We want to sit at his feet. Don't you just hunger to sit at the feet of Jesus this morning? I was telling somebody not long ago, maybe it was this last week, and I was thinking, we often wonder about what we're going to do in heaven, and I'm just thinking, if we really understood what Jesus has done for us to rescue us, wouldn't it be enough to just sit at his feet and worship him for eternity? I mean, I kind of like the picture of just thinking there's somebody coming along in, the, in eternity and you're sitting there before Jesus' feet and worshiping him and they're saying, hey, come on, you want to go check this out? And I'll be there in just a minute. I'm not quite done yet. A thousand years goes by, still worshiping Jesus. Hey, come on, let's go check out the fishing hole over here. I mean, they got some great holy fish in there, right? <laughs> no, I'll be there in just a minute. Another thousand years goes by. Why? Because you can't get enough of Jesus. That's what happens in the heart of a true believer. 
You never get tired of hearing his words. You just want to drink it in and serve him and tell other people about him because you've been rescued. You've been born again. These are the marks of a true believer. But now, those are my words, but let's listen to what John says. Those of you who are, have studied the book of 1 John, there are several tests that the Lord himself gives us. In 1 John chapter 1, I'm not going to read these texts, but here's what he says. Do you believe that Jesus literally came in the flesh as God? This is what chapter 1 talks about in 1 John. That's a test. If you truly believe that Jesus was God come in the flesh, you pass test number 1. He gives us another test in 1 John 5, all the way through chapter 2. Do you truly believe that you're a sinner? And I'm not talking about just in your head. I'm talking about in your heart. Do you know without the shadow of a doubt that you have violated the holiness of God and you are in perilous, dire situations? Well, God says, if you truly believe that, you've passed number two. Number three is, do you long in your heart to obey him? Because you know he's rescued you. I mean, in your heart, do you want to obey him? Now, this is the crux of the whole issue here, beloved, because we in our sinfulness do not want to obey. That's the bottom line. We want to tell everybody else what to do. And that's why God says, okay, if you're going to be my child, you've got to first of all admit that I am the king. I'm in charge. This is not a democracy. This is a dictatorship in a loving, benevolent way. You must be willing to be obedient to me. And from the heart, we need to be able to say that. God says, if you're willing to be obedient from the heart, you pass number three. And number four, do you love my people? Do you love my people? Yesterday I was thinking and, and just going through some of the things that we've done here recently, floating down the river. You know, a bunch of us got together. Everybody was invited, but some of you couldn't go. Floating down the river on an inner tube. Just kind of laughing and joking with each other. I ate a bunch of chocolate chip cookies. It was great. In fact, Jordan said, Daddy, you already eating chocolate chip cookies? They were still, some of our folks were still getting in the water, and I was already on my second cookie. It was awesome. But we didn't really do anything special. We just floated down the river. But it was beautiful. Because why? We were together. Yesterday, riding in that old beat-up bus out there, no air conditioning. It was awesome. The weather was cool, praise the Lord. All the way riding up there, riding on the metro, watching the girls have a good time. Scott and I were just kind of sitting back, enjoying it all, and just enjoying the presence of being together. You see, God says, if you love my people, then you can know whether you're truly born again. These are the tests that the Lord gives us. And I'm not going to preach through 1 John, but I could have, but that's what God is telling us. So basically, he's saying to us, you know that you're a true child of God if, number one, you believe in your heart. Not your head alone, but in your heart. Number two, you love from your heart. And thirdly, you want to obey. You truly want to live a life of obedience. And John summarizes all of those chapters in the fifth chapter, verse 13, by saying this. This again is in 1 John. These things I've written to you who believe, listen, in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. That you may know. Isn't it exciting that God wants us to know that we have eternal life? He doesn't want us to guess. He doesn't want us to be run over by the things of our lives. He wants us to enjoy time and fellowship with him and with each other. It's a beautiful life. What more could we ask? So we don't want to be deceived like the religious leaders were. We don't want to be that group. We want to be the people that God has opened the heart to and we can examine it and see if we are truly in Christ. Now, 
Let's keep, get back to the text here in Matthew chapter 3. To help them see the urgency of the changed heart that needs to happen, John says to them, listen, you boys are in the front of the line of judgment. If you don't change, the axe is already laid at the foot of the tree, the base of the tree. You're the tree, or rather Israel's the tree, and God is ready to whack it down because you're rebellious hearts. But you know, that's not a popular message. People don't want to hear that. Our culture certainly does not want to hear that. We are living in the mix of a, a terrible culture now that does not want a God of judgment. If they want to talk about God at all, they want a God of their own making, a God is loving, kind, gracious, accept me for who I am, the way I am, however I want to be. Almost like the conversation goes, God, you sit back for a minute and I'll tell you all the ways I want you to be and then we'll agree. See, it doesn't work like that. That's not the God of heaven. The God of heaven is the God of judgment and the God of mercy, both together. But he's perfectly balanced. And there are a lot of illustrations in all of this. We don't have to go too far into that. You know, we just look at how culture is treating authorities today and just the whole issue of you can't say anything to me that is going to bring judgment on me. Don't judge me. You'll hear people say that kind of thing. And it's just inundated with that kind of foolish thought. But there is a God who judges. There's a God of righteousness, but God, he's merciful too to those that will turn to him. Now from all that, we clarified the purpose as we're following John's message here, the purpose and the meaning of baptism, which is to symbolize this interchanged heart. That's what the act of baptism is all about. When Jesus came to John, it was to fulfill why he came, which was to satisfy the wrath of God against sin to take our place. That's why Jesus came. To prove who he was, he came alone and he came publicly. Remember we hinged on this last week or two weeks ago. He came alone. Why did he come alone? Because nobody can stand in anybody's place. There was no God in his case to go before him. He was God. So he came to show everyone around that he is the ultimate authority and he came publicly. He was not ashamed. He presented himself just like every one of us needs to do. In fact, Jesus was not ashamed to do any of that. Just like Billy Graham used to say all the time. You remember the final, some of the final words he would say in his messages, those of you who are old enough to remember this? Everyone Jesus called, he called publicly. That was a right statement. God has never called anyone to sit in the corner and never say or do anything for him. Never. He is always called publicly. In fact, we'll get to this in Matthew chapter 10, verse 32. Everyone who confesses me, notice this, Jesus says, before men, I will confess him to my Father. So the default is, you don't confess me before men, you probably don't belong to me. You're not living your life for me. Now, was he talking about audibly? Probably. But not necessarily. He was talking about the other things that we've already mentioned there. Verse 33, whoever denies me before men... I'll also deny him before my father. Can you imagine that scene? Can you imagine that scene in the throne room of God as Jesus is there before the father and we come before him and he's singling out people and he's saying to the father, I know him, I know him, I know him, father. And the father permits us and the others come up and he says, I don't know this person. Can you imagine that scene? I mean, all the movies of Hollywood and the special effects couldn't dramatize that accurately of what that's going to look like and how tragic that's going to be. I find this subject of 
publicly being a Christian to be the hardest thing people have to deal with. That's the part that the heart doesn't want to let go of. You know, you'll hear people, you'll hear people say things like, well, you know, don't talk to me about religion because that's between God and me. Like we got this private little thing going on you don't need to know anything about. But that's not how God works either. God, again, beloved, has come to display himself openly, publicly, so the world will come to him. And who are the vessels to help bring them to him? We are. We are to be the spokespeople. We are to be the examples. So John was confused a little bit about Jesus' coming for baptism. He wasn't God in the flesh like Jesus was, or is, was. So he tried to prevent him. Remember, John says, no, this is not going to work. Lord, you're not a sinner. You don't need to be baptized. Baptism is for those people who are displaying their need for God. You don't need that. But when Jesus confirmed for him who he was by saying, this must be done to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, Jesus was saying, no, I have to take the place of humanity, John. I have come to be the substitute, so you must do this. I must fulfill everything necessary to be identified with every human being on the planet who has come and who will come. And so when John understood that, he said then he permitted it. All right, now, that very rapidly catches us up to date with what we want to cover today, which is a little bit more about this identification of Jesus with humanity that he makes clear, and the act or the mode of baptism. Okay? So I think secondarily we could say that not only is Jesus identifying himself as the Savior of the world, but baptism also illustrates for us his death and his resurrection. I want you to be clear about these things. Let me go ahead and say this. Some of this is going to seem a little technical. I know a lot of people go, technical, technical. But listen, it goes back to the same thing I was saying. The world is smart. I don't know if you've noticed that or not. The world is very cunning. The world is very sharp when it comes to spiritual things, and Satan is especially very sharp. And what often discourages the world from hearing the truth of the Lord is God's people not knowing the answers to things. For example, somebody's going to come up to you eventually one day, and they're going to say, oh, I understand that to be a Christian I have to be baptized. That's what I need to do to be saved. And you're going to go... Um, well, yeah, uh, I think, right? So I don't ever want us to be like that. I want us to look into the scriptures deep enough so that we're able to answer the questions that the world might bring to us. Because if we can't answer the questions about the God that we say we love and serve and live our lives for and give our money to, why is the world going to listen to that? Who's ever going to get their attention? You see the point? So we're going to go into some of this stuff. We want to understand every time we see a baptism, which we haven't seen here in this church for a while, and I'm praying that God will give us some, we need to understand what we're really visualizing here. So it symbolizes the death and the resurrection of Christ, okay? So we've already talked about that part about who Jesus is. Now, if you listen closely, we have had when we've had baptisms, here's what you've heard me repeat. It comes from Romans chapter 6, Verse 4, and I want you to pay attention to some of these. I don't remember if I put all of these on the screen or not. There are quite a few things I want to show you here. Paul said this in both Romans and then again in Colossians. He said, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. 
so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. If you hear me do a baptism, you'll say, buried with him in his death, raised to walk in newness of life. That comes from Romans chapter 6, verse 4. So if you hear what Paul's saying here, is we have been buried with him, here's a picture of his death, with him through baptism into death. Okay? Colossians, Paul would say something very similar, chapter 2, verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead, when you were dead in your, trans, your, in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, that's when we were sinners without Christ, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our transgressions. He canceled it out, verse 14. I just want you to see again, Paul's saying to two different churches here the exact same thing. This is what baptism is all about. We have been baptized similarly as Jesus was baptized. His was different because he was God. He wasn't a sinner. We're baptized because we're sinners. We need to identify with his righteousness, not the other way around. Okay, now the best picture that shows this death and resurrection is baptism through immersion. Through immersion. I want to talk a little bit about this because there are people who are very confused about this and we'll try to bring this full circle so it makes good sense to us. In other words, sprinkling or pouring, and I'm talking about the physical act here, doesn't really give the clearest of pictures to what baptism is all about in these ways. Baptize, the word baptize literally means, in the Greek, it's a transliterated word. That simply means it was a Greek word that was carried over in English. It wasn't translated, it was transliterated. So if you look at the Greek, the word is baptizo. So some smart people said, okay, we're not going to change that word, we're just going to make it sound a little English. Baptism. But it always means to go into the water, to dip into the water, not the other way around. It's never used that way. In other words, it's not putting the liquid on top of something. Never in Scripture do we see that. In fact, in Luke chapter 16, the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man cried out and said to Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger how? in water. There's the same word used in a different context. It's dipped in. John 13, 26, Jesus said, this is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel. When I give it to him, the same word that Matthew is using here to talk about the baptism of Jesus. Now, it was the Catholic Church that started sprinkling people sometime in the Middle Ages. I read an interesting article this morning with some pretty good arguments that I'll bring up in just a second uh, about their view on this. Now, prior to all of that, Middle Age time, the Catholic Church did actually immerse people. In fact, it was Thomas Aquinas. That name should sound familiar to you, right? of the Catholic Church, who said this in 1225, somewhere around that time. He lived between 1225 and 1274, so probably somewhere in the 50s. In immersion, the setting forth of the burial of Christ is more plainly expressed, in which this manner of baptizing is more commendable. So there you go. Interesting, isn't it? Here's a Catholic theologian saying that immersion is a far better picture of what's actually happening here in the picture of baptism. But it was in the Middle Ages that the Catholic Church began to change that. From then, the Lutherans began to do some pouring. The Church of England started sprinkling in 1645. And then there were other things that happened. Now, some people have said 
But here's the problem. That you can't just always find the proper location for somebody to be baptized by immersion. That makes a lot of sense, right? I'll mention that in just a second. But let me show you a couple pictures that I found on the Internet this morning in an article that, that talked about this very subject and how when there is ample thought and time, this can be fulfilled. Look at this first picture here. Christy, can we show that up there? All right, now here's a picture of a soldier in Iraq being baptized, right? David's shaking his head. He knows what we're talking about here. They dug a trench in the desert because the, ar- the argument is, well, if we're going to argue about immersion always being the proper mode, then what about these guys living out in the desert? Well, here's what they did in the military, right? Is that right, David? That's affirmed. You say, well, what about where it's really cold? Surely they're not going to do that. How about the next picture? Here's a picture of Siberia. <laughs> they literally cut a hole in the ice. And dunking this poor guy. So, I mean, the argument is understood, but it's not well made, right? I just wanted to see those to say that when God's word says something, he's not just making suggestions. Okay, now again, God is full of grace. So we'll talk about that in just a second. So, if John's message was repent, convert... And repentance or regeneration is a washing, cleansing, symbolizing what Christ has done to purify the soul. Then pouring on water to somebody just doesn't fit the bill quite like the act that the Lord has told us to do. And this would be understood in the days of John and certainly in the days of Jesus. Okay? If God preserved this for us all these years, then there's reason for us to pay attention to it. Now look at the next statement in verse 16, back in Matthew chapter 3. We'll stay on this for just a couple more minutes. Notice, here's a good indicator of what was happening. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And what was that telling us? John didn't sprinkle Jesus. He didn't pour water on his head. Jesus came up from the water. This was immersion. And there are other passages that give us the same understanding that baptism in its fullest meaning is just that. John chapter 3, beginning in verse 22. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing in Enion near Salem because there was what? Much water there. Now listen. If you're baptizing by sprinkling or pouring, you don't need a lot of water, right? But the text is telling us that there was much water there. This was an arid region. This was a place that was hard to come by with water. It was precious to people. But this was the obedient act that the Lord was requiring. And John understood that. And the people were coming and were being what? Baptized. Okay? Interesting picture, isn't it? You remember the Ethiopian eunuch who was in the uh, desert when Philip met him in Acts chapter 8? Go there for just a second, or you can look on the screen. I think we have these, right? So Philip was caught up, and he was taken into the desert to go and preach the gospel. And so we are told in Acts Acts 8 verse 35, Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from the scripture, he was preaching Jesus to him. Now he's up on the chariot talking to the Ethiopian eunuch. As they went along in the road, they came to some water, and the, and the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, Well, if you believe with all your heart, how about that? Sound, what we were just, sound like what we were just talking about? 
You may, and he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. How about that? And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water. Philip, as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. Now again, think about it for just a second. This was desert. Don't think for a second that the, the eunuch, who was, by the way, in the hierarchy of the queen or the king, would have had a canteen of water with him. So would it have just been fitting for the eunuch to say, hey, I'm not doing all that. Here's my canteen, just pour it on my head. But he didn't do that. Well, because the Lord had said this is the proper way. And the eunuch evidently understood that. And there are no other examples in Scripture of sprinkling or pouring. They're just not. I mean, remember some months ago when we were doing our study on the Lord and where the Bible came from and all this, and we started off by saying that we have to be certain in our hearts that this truly is the word of the Lord. If we're not settled in our hearts that God is the only God that there is and that this is his word given to us, these things will be foolishness to us. But it doesn't matter when we know that he is the God of all gods. It's not foolishness, even if our human flesh thinks that. We just simply obey because that's what the Lord wants us to do, to picture what he has done for us. He came to the earth, he gave his life, he died, and he was resurrected again. Baptism pictures that. And we want to display our belief to the, Lord, to the world. Okay. Now, let me give you just a tangent here that some of you will zone in on and some will not. There are some denominations that teach that baptism is essential for salvation. Have you ever been witnessing to somebody and the subject of baptism comes up or the subject of salvation comes up and you say, well, so when were you born again? I hope you say things like that. Uh, Well, I was baptized on so-and-so. Okay, that's a very innocent statement. And I think people really connect the dots there. But I think in a lot of ways, people connect the dots incorrectly. Baptism does not save us. Now, you should know all of this by now. But again, as I said in the beginning of this message, you need to know why you know what you believe. That's the critical part for us this morning. You need to have text in mind when these subjects come up because those of you who work in the secular world and you have uh, a desire to speak to others about the things of God, it's going to come up at some point if you get deep enough with people. Now, the churches of Christ are one of those groups, those denominations that hold to this belief system. And I read an article, interestingly, called the Church of Christ Articles, or at least from them. The article was titled, Does the Act of Baptism Save Us? Well, in that article, the denomination basically says baptism teaches three things. Number one, baptism is essential for salvation. And I want you to think about your life through these things for just a minute. Secondly, it places the believer in Christ. Baptism does. This is what they teach. Thirdly, places the believer in the church. Now, by default, beloved, what that means is if those things are totally true, then if you've never been baptized and you're here today, you're not a part, you've never been saved, right? That means you're a part of the group that I mentioned earlier, that when Christ comes, you're going to the bad place. That also means that you cannot be, or you cannot be in Christ, If you've never been physically baptized, it also means that you cannot be a part of the church if you've never been baptized. Now, some of those things have relevancy and truth to them in their own way. Some of their primary verses are, and this is where it gets confusing for us, if we don't understand what's really happening. In Mark chapter 6, verse 16, this was the commandment. 
He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved. Now that can be a little confusing, can it? Baptized and believed? Acts 2.38, here's another one they use. Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I mean, that sounds like real fuel for the fire of the denominations that speak to this. But neither of these speak to the necessity of baptism for salvation. For example, Mark in his chapter 16, verse 16 says, basically, if you believe and are baptized, you will be saved. That's what it says. But what about the person who believes and never gets the opportunity to be baptized? What about that person? I remember having this conversation even with a Catholic friend of mine, and he says, oh, that, I brought up the, the thief on the cross. I said, he was never baptized, and their excuse for this was, well, he died a martyr because he died beside Christ. Okay, well, that's a good argument, you know, but that doesn't fulfill what Scripture says. Let's go back to the soldier, and some of you have heard me use this illustration. Um, what about the guy who's, or woman, heaven forbid, that's shot, maimed in some way on the battlefield, and the chaplain comes to him and Gives them the plan of salvation. They're coherent enough to see that, to hear that. They want Christ in their hearts, but they don't have the opportunity to be baptized because they go on into eternity before that can happen. What about that person? You see how these things begin to be a little confusing for our minds, but they're not confusing if we understand what the Lord is really saying here. So let's keep going this. Notice back again the phrase in Acts 2.38, It's written for the forgiveness of sins. Well, interestingly, this is where word studies come into play. The word for can have a couple different meanings here. For the forgiveness of sins can either mean aim or purpose, meaning that baptism is the aim of salvation, which is what the churches of Christ believe, but the word for can also mean on the basis or the grounds of something, meaning on the basis or grounds of a person's sin and already having confessed that, Being forgiven, people are then baptized, which is really the proper meaning in the context here. In other words, baptism comes as a result of salvation, not the other way around. Now, they also use Acts 10, verse 48, and I don't expect you to remember all these. If you really want these verses, I'll be glad to give them to you. Acts 10, 48, and he, Peter, ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. But they missed the point here as well. This is really not what Peter is saying here. If you go back a couple verses to verse 46, so just backtrack in the same chapter, Acts 10, verse 46 through 48. Here's the context. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God, and then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And he ordered them then to be baptized. In other words, what Peter is saying here is that the order had nothing to do with their salvation because the Holy Spirit was already in them. You see the missing of the context there. So the same message is proclaimed throughout the whole thing of Scripture is that it's always the salvation comes first and then the picture follows from that. It's not the other way around. Now some of you who've come out of the background that have been taught that you weren't saved until you were actually baptized is a wrong teaching. Let's just call it what it is. And I say that lovingly because I think many of these people are very genuine in their belief, but I don't think it fits with what Scripture says. It leaves too many holes. 
So Peter's commandment to be baptized, again, was for the Jewish believers to identify publicly with Christ. No question about that. Something that they had not done. Now that they had a changed heart, they were ready to show what that really meant. Here's another one. How about Romans chapter 6, verse 3 through 7? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? This is what we read earlier. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Here Paul's talking about the new life in Christ, but uses the word baptism as really a more of a metaphorical sense. He's not talking about the physical act of baptism here. He's not talking about water baptism, in other words. He's talking about what 1 Corinthians 10 and Galatians 3 talk about. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 5. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. He's talking metaphorically there. He's not talking about a literal baptism there. Galatians 3, 27. For you all were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. It's not the physical act that he's speaking of there. Again, so these all point, these, all these passages don't point to baptism as a means of salvation because they don't fit the rest of scripture either in other words if you just took those verses they wouldn't align themselves with the other passages of scripture that talk about salvation from the heart that don't have anything to do with baptism for example Abraham you remember how he was saved he was counted righteous how because of his faith we have no record of Abraham's baptism Romans 1.16, Paul says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. To whom? To everybody who's been baptized? No. To everyone who believes. First the Jew and then the Greek. Chapter 4, verse 5 of Romans. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Romans chapter 10, verses 8 through 10. What shall I say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which you are preaching. That Listen, here's the famous verse. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Right? There's nothing mentioned about baptism in there. 1 Peter 3, verses 18 through 21. For Christ also died for the sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. During the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water, corresponding to that baptism now saves you. Huh? What are you talking about, Peter? Oh, not the removal of dirt from the flesh. Do you see that? But an appeal to God for a good conscience. Peter's making it very clear there. I'm not talking about water baptism. I'm talking about a changed heart. It's the changed heart that saves you. It's the fact that you believe who Jesus is that saves you. And what he's done and your dedication to the fact that you know that you need him. That's what saves you. Here's some more verses. John 1.12, and I think you already get the point. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. Even those who, what, were baptized in his name? No, believe in his name. You could go through John 3.16. You could go to Acts 16.31. 
All of those passages. Okay, so now, again, just after hearing all of that, and that's a lot, I understand. I just want you to be settled on this. You need to know that baptism is an essential act for every believer. Why? Because Jesus said this was needed to be done to fulfill all righteousness. He identified with every human being, and every human being needs to identify with what he did. That's what's critical about it. A person is a part of the church not because of baptism, but because of their changed heart. Because they confessed Christ. Okay? Everybody really confused? It's good stuff. I mean, it's good stuff because, listen, beloved, there are lots of people who may be trusting in their baptism and miss the heart change. People who think they're on their way to heaven because they were part of a denomination or a church that said, oh, you've got to be baptized. And they'll emphasize the baptism more than the heart change. And that's really missing the point, and it's tragic. And there are going to be a lot of people who are going to be shaking their fist in hell because they missed the point. I hope you see it that seriously. All right, let's keep going here. Back to the text. Now, Jesus came up out of the water. Notice, behold, the heavens were opened. Now, what that means, I don't know. We've seen this in other places in Scripture, but it was just an amazing sight. It's never happened prior to that with Jesus. It's not going to happen again in this particular sense because this was unique to Jesus. It was for all those who were watching. And notice what John says. He saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. The Holy Spirit came down on Jesus. What John says is in the form of a dove. Now, people have questioned what that really was looking like. Well, I don't know what that looked like, but Luke makes it a lot more clear. If you go to Luke chapter 3, verse 22, he says of the same scenario, the Holy Spirit descended upon him, notice, in bodily form like a dove. So whatever this amazing picture was, it looked like a dove coming down that landed right on the top of Jesus' head. You say, well, what's really happening here? I thought Jesus was God. Well, Jewish thought and symbolism always was of the Holy Spirit looking like a dove. So a dove pictured a Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was pictured through a dove. So for the Jewish believers, they would have gotten that. Oh, this is the work of God. You see, he's identifying who the true king is. Look, the spirit of God that we recognize being symbolized by dove is settling upon the heart and the the head of this man. What's happening here? Well, that's because this was an important event that the world needed to see. This is none other than God himself. So God was announcing who Jesus was, as I said, because he was human. He needed the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, don't get lost in that. Jesus was fully man, right? Everybody say Jesus was fully man. He was fully man, and that's important because that's how he identifies with our weaknesses. But he also needed the power of God at this time in his life because he was fully man as well as he was fully God. This was picturing for us the fact that Jesus was human, but he was also God. But he would get tired, right? He would be tempted in all ways that we would be tempted. He gets hungry. He feels the emotions we feel. He needs the power of the Holy Spirit to get him through these things that he was going to have to face, all to show us that he was God who fully came in the flesh. Isn't that one of the tests that John said? 1 John, we just read a little bit ago. If you believe that he was God come in the flesh, okay. Why is John saying that? Because back in his baptism, God showed that he was God by coming down on him through the picture of the Holy Spirit as a dove. 
Now, there's another thought about the dove. The dove also, and I thought this was pretty cool. I saw this in a commentary. A dove was an animal that could be provided for sacrifice by the people who were the poorest. Think of this picture. It's just a beautiful picture of the Lord, his humility. The the wealthy people were the ones who could afford the oxen and the sheep and those kind of animals. But the doves were for the common people, the everyday people who just didn't have the means to provide for themselves. And so the thought is the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus to show his beautiful sacrifice, a sacrifice of humility for the poorest of the poor, for the people who had nothing to offer him. He came for them. The lowest, the outcast, listen, the drug addicts, the people who are confused about their lives, the adulterer, the thief, the murderer, the housewife, the, the husband, the businesswoman, the businessman, the Wall Street tycoons, everybody you want to put in the category of whether they're up the hierarchy or the lowest, God came for those people. And that's a beautiful thought, beloved. He came for us. This was the anointing of his death the anointing of his power to prepare him for what he would be faced with for our case and for our sake. In verse 17 here, John gives to us this voice that he hears from heaven. Look at that. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Interestingly, this is a past tense statement. In other words, that statement is not saying, oh, because of this act, he is well pleasing to me. That's not what the Lord is saying. So don't hinge on that. What he's saying is of who Jesus is, he is perfectly fulfilling all the joy of my heart. That's what the Lord is saying. Everything over the last 30 years, I've watched and I've examined him as if the Father is saying, and everything that I see is perfect. He is God within his humanness. He is still perfect. He is without spot or blemish in his heart and in his character, his nature, his love. He has my seal upon him. And I'm pleased with him. It's beautiful. And notice who's a part of this great event. We see a beautiful picture of the Trinity here. The Son comes to be baptized. The Holy Spirit descends on him. And then the Father proclaims to the watching world, this is my Son. If you want a reference for the Trinity, write that down somewhere in your Bible or your notebook because that's a beautiful picture of the working of all three in the Godhead. To all that, the voice of the Father says, this is my beloved. You've heard me say that numerous times already in my message. Sometimes it becomes routine for me to say it, but I hope it never sounds routine because it's a term of endearment. It really is. It's It's a word that's meant to emphasize how much I love you as a pastor to you and how much God loves us. He was saying to Jesus and to the crowd, I love this son of mine. He is my chosen one. I adore him. And we have an unbreakable relationship between the two of us. And I would like to say, too, that when we think of each other as the beloved, that we would have that kind of relationship with each other, that we would love each other enough to be referring to one another as beloved. It's not just preacher talk. I mean, I say it because I mean it from my heart, but we really, among each other, should think of each other as the beloved, that we have this relationship between us and God as this triangle, so to speak, that we see each other in that way. And too often, it's just the opposite, where people are irritated with each other, frustrated, and you do your thing, and I'll do my thing, and, and the church sits sideways like that. And that's not what God intends for us. He shows us the picture of what he wants. 
And watch all of this. We'll close this out. Because the Father finds no fault or imperfection in him. Notice what he says. He finds no fault in us either. Romans chapter 5, verse, chapter 5, verse 17. For if by the transgression of the one, that's Adam, by the way, death reigned through the one, right? In other words, God's Paul saying to the church, hey, sin entered in through Adam and the curse passed on through Adam to all human beings. Much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one. Jesus Christ. Adam messed up, but Christ came to bring us back together. How can you not love a God like that? I mean, it just blows my mind that people just want to think of God as being something other than who he really is. Beautiful truths to us. God loves us, beloved. There I go again. God loves us more than we could ever imagine. In our hearts, he loves us. In his own heart, he loves us more than we could ever imagine. We think we love the closest person that we really love in our minds, and God 10,000 times more loves us to do what he's done for us, to give his own son for us. So let me just say all this in conclusion, and that is if if you've never admitted in your own heart that you're a sinner, and I'm talking about in the heart, and you need the forgiveness of Christ, you should do that today without question because that's the first step. And then be baptized. Show the world that you truly belong to Christ. Don't be afraid to say to the watching world by immersion that you need to be baptized. And let me just argue one other point here just for a second. That doesn't mean now if I were a chaplain on the battlefield and there was a soldier in that condition I was saying earlier that I wouldn't take out my canteen and dump water on their head. You get the picture? If I, could bear, if I could dig a trench within 30 seconds and fill it full of water, I would baptize that brother that way, right? But if I didn't have that opportunity, God is not building legalism here. God is building a proper method. So if you've never been through the waters of baptism, it's not going to save you, but it is an obedient act to the Lord. I remember, I was raised in the Methodist church, and guess what they do in the Methodist church? They sprinkle And that was a big deal to me. In fact, I was baptized with water out of the Jordan River. You want to touch me after the service? (laughs) I can remember being so moved by that as a young man because of who God is. And this was water from the Jordan River. I remember my mom holding it out to me and saying, here, just touch it. I was like, Mom, I can't touch that. And I was serious. I felt that in my heart. But when I began to understand what baptism really is, Debbie and I were actually already married. When I began to understand what baptism really is, you know what I did? I told the pastor, I said, I need to be baptized by immersion. And I was. And I just felt complete. I felt like I'd been obedient to the Lord. And so if you've never gone through the act of public baptism, saying, Lord, you have my heart, you have my soul, you have my life, I want to. I want the world to know that. We can do that this afternoon, as soon as we get the tank filled up. We can do that this week. We can do it next Sunday. You know what? The Ethiopians said, hey, look, Philip, here's water. What's keeping us from doing this? And by golly, praise the Lord, we have water. That's not the problem. 
Uh, say one last thing. Why does the Lord ask us to go through all this? Well, I think you know theologically, but you know what else? It's a real act of humility. I remember we had a couple that was here some years ago that the, the wife was just precious as could be. He was too, but he would not be baptized. And he was kind of stubborn about it. He would not do it. And it came down to being willing to stand in front of others and just being humble. I think that's one of the reasons why the Lord has us go through it because it's an act of humility. It's releasing our kingdom to his kingdom. And so if you've never gone through baptism, please be obedient to the Lord. Don't be afraid to do that because you remember Jesus said, listen, if you'll not acknowledge me before men, I'm not going to acknowledge you before others who are before my Father in heaven. Close with this verse, Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men which by we must be saved. Amen? All right. So now, your mind is full, probably swelling to uh, bursting by this point. Your stomachs are hungry, but you want to leave here to be obedient to the Lord. So let's close in prayer. And I want to just give you an opportunity to um, do some business with the Lord. You know, you may have been in a church for centuries, I don't know, and you've never been through baptism because you've never really fully understood. And I pray that this morning, that if that's you, that you'll be obedient to what the Lord says. And come up here and pray, or we can pray afterwards, or whatever you want to do, okay? All right, let's close in, in that way. Lord, we thank you that your word is never exhaustive. Sometimes, Lord, we get exhausted sitting and listening. Our flesh is so weak. It's just quite amazing to me as even as I watch myself throughout the week, there are times where I get so caught up in the things of this world that I forget the most important, which is just to be with you. Lord, thank you for this privilege that we have week after week to just come together and put down our cell phones and get rid of the newspapers and if people even read those these days, turn off the television, push away from the work world and the things that frustrate us to just sit at your feet. Lord, thank you for always being so faithful to feed us, to teach us, to give us these pictures in your word that show us the truth about what the meaning is. And so, Lord, uh, we just, as always, do our best this morning to acknowledge you for who you are for being the great God that you are, the loving, merciful, gracious God. Lord, I would pray, too, that if there's anyone in the sound of my voice or even listening by Facebook or that will listen on the Internet this week to this recorded message, that if they've never been obedient to you, I pray that you'd convict those hearts. Help them to know that you want them to confess before others through this great act of baptism. Thank you, Lord, that it's not saving us, but you save us just through our own confession of our need for you. So we give this time to you now and pray that you would do the work in the hearts of men and women for eternity's sake and for your name's sake, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.